spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. That's as far as we got, but then he's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all of his attributes, his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So I don't want to look at that any more in depth. The point is simply, that's what God is in one living and true God. Uh, but beyond that, uh, really, the, the two parts of, of this question, the and is what separates them, by the way, and that Jesus Christ is God's son come in the flesh. That's, that's the second part. But the first part concerning God, he is a spirit, we said. He's a living and true God. Number five, there is only one God. Uh, let me let me just read that um, in the confession or, or the catechism. I always want to call the catechism the confession. I don't know why. So God is a spirit, but are there more gods than one? There's but one only, the living and true God. That's very simple. And it's the same thing confessed here. Do you believe in one living and true God? Uh, very simply, there is only one God and there is no other. That's the, the, the description of scripture everywhere. And one of the things you have to confess if you are a Christian is that I do not believe in the God of Islam or any other religion. The only God who is true is the God of the Bible. And he is alive and he's true. But just as soon as you say that, so we've affirmed that he's spirit, number four, number five, that he's the only God. And there's only one. There are not three gods. There's one God. Then you have to deal with the question of the Trinity. And then after you deal with the question of the Trinity, you have to deal with the question of the Incarnation. Now, this vow, the second vow, is the hardest for a child to grasp. Uh, but, but just be assured that even the greatest theologians who ever lived had trouble over these things. So we're about to say there's only one God, but that he exists eternally in three persons or as three persons. All right. So I'm going to stop right there and ask you, how many gods are there? Uh, Meredith. There's one God. You know, even adults get tripped over that. You, start, you, you give them the formula and then you ask them the question and they say three. Uh, there are not three gods. There is one God who exists eternally in three persons. Who can tell me the names of those three persons? Uh, Priscilla. There you go. So there's one God who eternally exists as God in three persons. And so the math of the divine is one equals three. You say, wait a second, you're getting funny with me, Pastor. But that is what we call a mystery, okay? It's okay to say that something that Scripture teaches about God is profoundly mysterious, and I don't understand it. Uh, how is it that Christ communes with his church in the supper or in the preaching? It's deeply mysterious. We don't fully understand it, but we understand at least that God is affirming this about himself. And so if God says it's true, then it's true. And so when we say that all three persons are equally God without becoming three separate gods, what we're saying is that the Father is God, and we're saying that the Son is God, and we're saying that the Holy Spirit is God. Do you understand why that's so important when we come to the next uh, issue? Let me, let me finish the thought with, with question in six, and how many persons are the three uh, are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead: the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Each of them are equally God. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. This is what I keep saying. Do you understand why that's so important? Uh, 
It's important because what we are saying about Jesus when we say that Jesus is Lord, and that was his testimony about himself, when he said, I and the Father are one, and when he said uh, that he was the Lord even, and his disciples confessed about him that he was the Lord, what he was saying is that Jesus Christ, this is the second vow, is God the Son come in the flesh. Now, which person is God the Son? Is he the first, second, or third person of the Trinity? Grace? He's the second. But he's saying that I, I and the Father are one. I belong to the Godhead. I am God. That's what Jesus was saying. But then the question was, and I, I think it was Clara who asked it, but she's not here. If you're saying God is a spirit, isn't Jesus a man? The answer is yes. But he didn't cease to be a, God, a spirit even as he became a man. So he continued to be God, the spirit, the son, even as he became a man. And this is what it says in, um, in the confession, which fills out all we have here is Jesus Christ is God, the son come in the flesh. Um, question 21 has to, 20 has to do with the fact that men as sinners needed a redeemer. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? That's what we've been considering in the morning. God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the state, the estate of sin and misery, to bring them into a state of salvation by a redeemer. In other words, man is sinful and God promised to save sinful man through a redeemer or a savior. And who is that savior? Jesus. And who is Jesus? Duncan? Right. God's son come in the flesh. He didn't take the name Jesus until he became a man. What was his name before Jesus? The son. The son. Or the logos. Or the word. But now the son became man. And his name is Jesus. Do you realize that even now in heaven Jesus is a man? Uh, he is. He is now God and man in one person forevermore. And so he didn't cease to be a spirit, but he became a man. And now he's both in one person. Who is the redeemer of God's elect? This is question 21. The redeemer, the only redeemer of God's elect is, G is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the Lord. He's God. He's the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God. That's the second person of the Trinity became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. He's God and man. You say, is Jesus a spirit? Yes, he is. But he does have a body like man. That's the amazing thing about Jesus. Now, I would argue that is the greatest mystery of all. That's even more mind boggling than the Trinity, in my opinion. Uh, but these are the two great mysteries that three equals one and that and that God became man. The great the great mysteries of the Christian religion. You know, most people don't accept those. They say that is utter nonsense. You are asking me to believe the impossible. And the answer is, yes, I am. Except all things are possible with God. That was Jesus answers to man. And so this is something incredible that the second person of the Trinity became a human being, a real human being, just like you and me. And that he continues to be a human being, even as he continues to be God for all eternity. That's who Jesus is. And when we say Christ is Lord, 
which is the most basic Christian confession. We are saying all of that, that the man, Jesus Christ, the carpenter who became a a teacher and was crucified on the cross is the second person of the Trinity and that he's now reigning in heaven and he will come again and gather his elect. But how did he become man? This is the question 22. We have four minutes. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? That's the great question. If God is a spirit and doesn't have a body like men, how did he ever become a man? And again, it's a great mystery. And so if you look at these five vows and you say, you know, number two is just too much for me. I, I don't understand it. Well, I'm not asking you to understand it, but do you believe it? Do you believe it? Because I don't understand it either. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and born of her yet without sin. And so what the confession, or the catechism, I called it the confession again, is saying, if you look to the beginning of Mark, Matthew, not Mark, excuse me, Matthew or Luke, you will see that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the way he became man is that he just came down from heaven and he assumed fleshly form. But that he was actually crafted in his mother's womb, just like all of you were. And he was a little tiny fetus, and then he became a baby, and then his mother gave birth to him, and then he nursed at her breast, and he, he, he cried in the manger. He was born in a manger. He cried in his crib. He kept his parents awake at night. But the one thing he never did was sin. He never sinned, not once in all of his life. He was the perfect sinless man, but he was also God. That's who Jesus is, and that's who he continues to be. So he was like us in every possible way, with one great exception. I just said it, but say it back to me. I want to make sure you got it. What's the answer? William? He was perfect. Yes, so he didn't have any... Sin. Good job. He had no sin. He never, ever sinned. Even when he cried and woke his parents up at night. Or even when he stayed at the temple and then they were worried sick when they were several days away and realized they didn't have him or however far it was. It wasn't? No. Jesus actually told them that, didn't you know I'd be in my father's temple? So uh, we can understand they might have thought it was sinful, but then they had to realize, no, no, this is the son of God. Uh, and could you imagine raising the son of God? You can imagine for them the trial of faith that it was. But the point is, he was a real man like you and me, and he still is. Except now he has a glorified, resurrected humanity like we will one day possess. And even we will have no sin then. Do you realize that in the resurrection, if you're a believer, you'll have no sin either. And you'll be like Jesus, except you won't be God, but you will be a glorified human. So you will be like the son of God then. Another way to describe this just very simply is in questions 27 and 28. What I just described, what is called his humiliation and his exaltation, which both have reference to his humanity. When he came into the world, it was in the humble form of a servant, a babe born in a manger. All of his life, he didn't have a dollar to his name. He didn't have a pillow on which to rest his head. But as he's exalted into heaven, what is exalted about him? Well, he was already God. You can't add to Godhood. But what was exalted about him was his humanity. So humiliation and exaltation. Christ, when he was born, was born a a humble servant. When he was raised... He was raised an exalted king. 
Wherein does Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. So from the moment of his conception in his mother's womb all the way to the last moment of his burial, he was he was under the power of sin, Paul says. He was he was uh, under the wrath of God. He was humiliated as a servant. But the moment he broke free from that tomb, he was exalted. Wherein consists Christ's exaltation. Christ's exaltation consists in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. Christ is now enthroned in heaven. He is looking after his church. He is gathering together his elect from all nations, and on the last day he will gather them unto himself and bring them into heaven as their king. He'll also judge the unrighteous. He'll judge the unrighteous and cast them into hell. So he, he is exalted in heaven. He is, he is seated on his throne as a man like you and me, except exalted in his humanity, like we will one day be in the resurrection. That's the Christian hope. What I'm, what I'm hoping that you are coming to see is that the catechism is a helpful summary of the Christian faith, of what we are confessing in uh, the vows. And it's a helpful tool in learning the basics of Christianity, which, again, hopefully you will be able to say, when I ask you all five of those questions, you're like, I, I, that, that's, that's what I understand about Christianity. That's what I've been taught. That's what I believe. In other words, none of this is new to you. I say, do you believe God is three in one, three persons in one godhood? You're like, that's the very language I was taught in the catechism and in the Bible. So, in other words, the answer is yes, you do believe it. But I don't want to sit down with you and go over these questions and you say, I don't have any idea what you're talking about, Pastor. So uh, that's what we're trying to do here. But with those words, let us uh, pray. And then two more classes. We'll do questions three and four, then question five using the, the catechism. Father, we thank you for the teaching of the catechism and, and, and the little uh, budding faith of these children, or perhaps in the case of some, no faith at all. But we pray that you would give it to all and that you would enable Enable us to, uh, each of us, to, to not just believe in the simplest way, but even to be able to add to our faith a measure of knowledge and an ability to profess it before others in the church, even these children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.